So last week I talked about a word that I wanted us to pay attention to, and that word was called resolve. Resolve. And so hopefully you learned something last week. Look, the, the truth is, is that our culture is so politically correct today that many of us are afraid to take a stand for anything. And so I think a lot of times us men are losing our resolve for who we are and who we're called to be. We would rather be passive than be persuasive. But men, all men are leaders. I want you to hear this. And we're not called to be passive. We're called to be persuasive. This is who God made us to be. Abraham Lincoln stated, be sure you put your feet in the right places and then stand firm. And so when you're standing in the right place, just continue to stand firm, continue when he says, when the Lord says move forward and move ahead, that we move forward and we move ahead. My point is that at times, sometimes, maybe is a better way to put it, sometimes we lose our resolve. We live in a time where the squeaky wheel not only gets the grease, but many feel they are right. I said that last week. The squeaky wheels that get the grease sometimes, if you think about that with me for just a moment, uh, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. If you got a child in the back seat who's wet his pants, squeaky wheel needs to get the grease. Andrew. <laughs> but let's just be honest. When Madeline O'Hare started, started complaining and, and crying in the 1960s over, uh, their, their, their son or daughter having to say a prayer in school or at least have a time for prayer in school, we let one person, one squeaky wheel change the whole country. And it's changed us in, in a lot of ways and continues to do so today. So here's, here's the truth. My point is somewhere someone lost their resolve. And we, we live in a day and time where, it's, it, where we're called men, if we're going to be Christians, followers of Christ, that we're going to have to become men of resolve again. Last week, I, I, I covered two things. I said the first is one way to keep your resolve is the mission must be bigger than ourselves. We must be kingdom minded. That's one of the ways to be resolved on something. You know, I, I, I don't remember if I shared this last week, but as a matter of fact, I do remember I talked about uh, the live firing uh, uh, deal that we went through while I was in the in the army and and they were shooting a canyon uh, above us and we had to kneel down and drag people through it and all this other stuff and get used to hearing kind of kind of what it sounded like to hear those bullets whiz overhead and and it was an interesting thing but the minute you lost vision of your mission is when you became vulnerable we had one guy who was actually the guy right behind me right he just locked up and fell down and we had to wind up going back and getting him because he heard the bullets instead of seeing the mission so this is a great, great lesson for us this morning. The mission must become bigger than ourselves. We must be kingdom-minded. Jesus gave us the mission, go into all the world and make disciples. And so we have this great mission in Matthew 28, 19. That's what we're called to do, and that's what we're called to be, right? A disciple and make disciples. The second thing I talked about last week is character, godly character, that the scripture calls us to godly character. A couple different times, the apostle Paul talks about, and in your godliness, whatever's next, right? Brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. I mean, he always has these little sequences that are going on. I want you to know something that godliness comes from a word that we talked about last week known as Eusebia. And it's E-U-S-E-B-I-A. That's a Greek word. And this is what it means. It means to worship well. So if you're reviewing with me right now, I'm, that's all I'm doing. This is the cool thing about godliness. Godliness, if it means to worship well, watch this. It means that as we live godly lives, our lives then become a form of worship. Does that make sense? 
I mean, we can't miss this because we have a tendency just to think that worship is Sunday mornings when we come in here and we lift our hands and we have a great worship team and, and things are just, man, we just feel so good. And that is a part of worship. But Eusebia actually means godliness, which means to worship well with your life. So your lifestyle is a form of worship. And if we can put that together with our resolve, we're resolved to be godly men of the kingdom, then we will worship well in this life. So it all goes together. It begins to tie together, right? So today I want to talk about uh, a couple of different uh, people. And in these two people, just so you know, it's a father-son. It's a father-son relationship. Both of them had kingdoms. Both of them had the opportunity to lead. Both of them had the opportunity to be godly and to be godly, strong, strong men. Both of them started out well, but only one ended well. So I'm talking about David and Solomon. If you don't know anything about Solomon, Solomon actually was the son of not just David, but who else? Bathsheba. Good. You guys read your Bible. It's a good deal. And if you know anything about Bathsheba, Bathsheba kind of, you know, uh, had a little seduction going over, uh, over on, on, on a, uh, the top of a cosball. And while she's hanging out on that cosball, David just happened to glance over and he couldn't get the image out of his mind. But let's go on. That was his fall that we tend to know about. But there was something very different about David and Solomon, even though King David helped raise Solomon. Uh, and Solomon was really warned. I, I was thinking about this as I was driving here this morning. When you read uh, Proverbs, um, the I think it's Proverbs 31. Okay, it's somewhere in Proverbs. Maybe it's Proverbs 1. It's where uh, David's own mother, Bathsheba, is addressing David. Many of you remember, and she addresses him as Lemuel. Uh, L-E-M-U-E-L, I believe is how he does it, and, uh, and how it's written. And that's what she would call him. It just kind of means my beloved, my most beloved, my child. So she had poured herself into Solomon. Just know that. And I'm sure David did too. But Solomon just didn't end well. David did. Now, when we think about David, there's a few things, and you'll have to jot these scriptures down. We don't have time to cover these scriptures this morning. Just a heads up, the comparison between character. Because when we talk about godliness, we're talking about character. When we talk about character, we're talking about living a lifestyle of worship and being resolved to do that in our lives. In our lives, when this life is over, what we want to hear said is, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. All of us want to hear that one day. Well, who does God say that to? Those who live out there, Eusebia, if you will, their godliness, their godly character, their resolve that this is the life that God has given me and I will do well in it and do well with it. David was that man. David, when we think of David, at 16, he had moral combat with a giant. He had courage. Let me just tell you some traits of David. Courage, patience. In 1 Samuel 24, 26, David refused to kill Saul. He had a couple of different opportunities, right, to kill Saul. One time, he even cut the edge of his robe off, held it up, and said, I was this close to you, but you are God's anointed. Who am I to take the life of one of God's anointed? He had patience. He had leadership. In 2 Samuel 8, 15, he reigned over all Israel, is what the Scripture says, doing what was just and right. Now, notice when you read that, now, all governments, all governmental systems uh, uh, should have a representation of God within them. 
our governmental system here in the United States should have a representation of God within it. Of course, it was set up on biblical principles. There's no doubt that it was. It's the reason why we've lasted as long as we have. But this is Israel. And I want you to see how this, how this statement ends. Watch how David reigned. Watch his leadership. Second Samuel 8.15, he reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right. Watch this. For all his people is what the scripture says. He didn't do what was just and right for himself. He saw the people. He saw their needs. He saw that he wanted to care for the people. He wanted people taken care of. He was compassionate. It brings us to another point that David had. He took on Mephibosheth. He, the crippled son of his friend Jonathan, when all the wars were done, after he had fought with King Saul and King Saul was dead and his best friend Jonathan died with his dad, uh, King Saul. And, and, and you remember David starts asking a question. He said, are there any relatives of my, of my brother Jonathan still alive? Now it's not really his brother, but the scripture says that their souls were knit tight as though they were brothers. And so he asked the question, is there anyone out there that's still living of Jonathan? And it was Mephibosheth and he was crippled. Now this is interesting because then he invited him to his table every day. He was going to take care of Mephibosheth. Now, if you were crippled in their day and time, you had to have a compassionate heart in order to bring them to the table. You had to be compassionate because the, the cripples were not invited into a king's house. Just so you know, the kings were really there and, and the, the, the type of congregation that they would have in front of them, the type of people that they would bring forth, they were always trying to make a point. They never showed a weakness. They only showed their strengths. And so to have a cripple at the table would show a weakness. So this was very unusual. And so you see how compassionate David really was when he invited Mephibosheth to, to his table. The other thing was he was passionate. You know this about David. Uh, a man who is resolved, a man who is uh, Eusebia, he has this godly worship about him, has this godliness that exudes off of him. He is going to be a person who is passionate. This was David, 2 Samuel 6, 14, the famous scripture, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Some of your scriptures do read, David danced naked before the Lord, right? Let's not part participate in that here, okay, on Sunday mornings, but I will say this, man, that he was passionate. He was passionate. He was strong. The scripture tells us in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 30, verse 6, but David found his strength. Watch this, not in himself, it says, but David found his strength in the Lord. So David knew that his strength was given. It was, it was God-given. It was a God-given strength. These are just some uh, characteristics, some Eusebias, if you will, about David. David was an incredible man of God, but that didn't make him immune to temptation. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, all of us know the story. David notices a woman, she's sunbathing, or she's taking some type of bath. She's walking around naked. We get the picture. Now take that picture out of your mind. He sends Uriah to the front line. Uriah is Bathsheba's wife. And what happens to, or husband, and what happens to uh, Uriah on the front line? He gets killed, right? And, and everything's fine. It all works out until a prophet by the name of Nathan shows up. Now David is exposed. If the story ended here, all of David's accomplishments might have been lost. Now, let me say that again. If the story ended with Bathsheba, then all of David's accomplishments could have been lost, man. There's something that, that was different about David. There's a reason why his story continued on. Matter of fact, 
His story didn't just continue on after this. You know what his, his story set up an eternal throne in Zion. That's amazing to me. So what was different? There's, there's, there's one thing. David did something. He repented. He repented. And when you compare David's kingdom to Solomon's kingdom, that's really the difference that you see between the two. David understood that he made a mistake. David understood that he was a man called by God. David understood that the strength that he had came from the Lord. David understood that his godliness was to represent his God in a form of worship and that he was to be resolved in that. David had an understanding about those things. He understood, too, it it, it stood to be lost. And he had to go before his, his God, before his Lord. And after, after the, the son died, if you remember David, he, he cried and he cried and he repented and he lamented. And he was even asked, how long are you going to do this? And finally, one day he stood up and said, I'm done. I have repented. I've, I've poured myself out to God. And, and if you read Psalm, even up to Psalm 51, what you see is a lot of David's repenting. It, it continued to go on. He just wanted that relationship with he and his Lord to be so strong. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and then eventually an eternal throne that Jesus would, would come through that lineage, right? And so in 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 through 4, David is near death. He hands over the reins to his young son Solomon, and this is what he tells him. He says, so be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. So here he's about to check out, and Solomon's checking into the kingdom. And David at this time, remember, he's left all these these supplies, everything else to build this temple, to to build this thing uh, for the Lord. Not, Not just coming out of a tabernacle anymore, but he's got all the plans laid out for this temple, this beautiful temple, and Solomon's going to have the responsibility to build this temple for the people. And 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 David says, be strong, show yourself a man. You can't be a boy and do this. You're going to have to grow up and be a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. If you observe something, it means you have to be in the presence of it. You have to see and hear what's going on. And so here's what David commands Solomon to do. And Solomon got off to a great start. Now, he was young. He was young, but he got off to a great start. This is while sacrificing at Gibeon. You remember he asked for wisdom. He reigned... uh, in, in life pretty well up until he was the age of 40. Then a midlife crisis drove him to marry outside of God's people. Remember, he was warned, and he wound up with 300 concubines and 700 wives. That's tough. I don't know. I've thought of that a lot. Matter of fact, it would have been better. Oh, he'd have been better off with 700 concubines and 300 wives. Just telling you. None of it's good, guys. Don't do that. As he grew old, his wives turned his heart. The scripture says his wives turned his heart towards other gods because he married outside. He, he went out into other religions. He invited other religions, other ways, other things into his life. And then he, if there are 700 wives, it means that the two became one flesh. How do you do that 700 times? How do you, how do you have this tie in? You see, so he had to, he had to take in their gods and their ways and their, their, their lords and their idols. So Solomon did, the, the scripture says in 1 Kings eleven six. it says, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. The Bible contains, watch this, no record that Solomon ever repented. 
We've got it all throughout Scripture, especially in, in Psalms of David repenting, but we don't have any record of Solomon repenting. David tripped over a hurdle, but he got back up and he finished the race. An eternal throne was set up uh, based upon a man after God's own heart, a man who was resolved to finish the race, a man who worshiped well in his life. But Solomon, well, he dropped out of the race. He, he didn't just trip over a hurdle or many hurdles. He just finally dropped out of the race. You know, uh, he probably dropped out of the race blaming his dad, blaming his wives, blaming his concubines, blaming his kingdom. Here's what happens. This is the reason why we drop out of the race, men. It's usually not something we've done. It's usually something that's been done to us. Let's just be honest. You're going to hear a story this coming Sunday. I'm going to share about a man, and I'll give you a heads up on it, about a man who I went to visit up at the VA hospital. He's in his 80s. He had fallen and broken his nose, and they had put him on, on oxygen. He had two black eyes, and I go up there, but he, he hadn't been to church in like 50, 60 years. Uh, it was longer than that because uh, he had been a boy. His wife always came to church, so she asked me if I'd go visit him, and I went to visit him. And anyway, I asked him why he didn't go to church, and he said, well, I'm going to tell you why I didn't go to church. Because one day I heard my dad and the pastor who had come out, uh, and they were arguing over the finances of the church, and I determined that day that I wouldn't go to a place that wanted me to, to pay money to come. And that's ridiculous. That's all you pastors want. That's all the churches want. And that's all. And so he let an offense keep him out of the presence of the Lord. It's amazing how we do this. I wonder about Solomon. Solomon tried to fill the void in his life with everything else. Give me more concubines. Give me more wives. Give me more idols. Give me more treasures. Give me more of this, this, and this. And as those things poured in, he probably became even more and more offended. People started talking about him. You don't reign like your daddy. Your daddy was awesome, but look at you. Well, that makes a guy feel good, doesn't it? And probably what kept him out of the presence of the Lord was just a simple offense. Maybe several simple offenses. But let's just be honest, men. Most of the time that we stay out of the presence, most of the time we have excuses, it's excuses over what others have said or done to us. And if that's the case for pastors, none of us pastors would preach. Right? We wouldn't last long. Some of you out there talking right now, you need to hush. So let's talk about this, Eusebio. These two guys, these two men, we had one that repented and one that didn't. Let's, uh, let's go through uh, uh, some ways to improve our character. Now, guys, I'm going to just uh, throw these out there, and this is a very short message this morning. I've already been 20 minutes, and we don't have long to go. Four places to improve your character. You ready? The first place that we can all improve our character is public. Uh, I, I call this four ways to pee. All right, because all these start with P. Here we go. The public. It's the easiest way to improve your character. It's the easiest way to take a stand. It's the easiest way to have Eusebia, if you will, to worship well, to, to live a godly lifestyle is in front of others. It can be from dressing nice for the occasion to managing my words in such a way that it builds others up around me. The apostle Paul said it this way, spur one another on to good words and good deeds. Take a genuine interest in a co-worker's life. It happens in public. Ask them how they are, their family, their job. Ministry, remember, is only as far as the one that's standing in front of you. So in your public places, wherever God calls you today, in your publicity, if you will, 
Just, just pay attention to what God is doing and worship well through your words, through your thoughts, through your actions, through the way you ask them questions about themselves. How about this? The next room you step into, you ask about them instead of them asking about you. The second place is professional. What's different between public and professional? Public can be anything. It might be Walmart. But professional are those that you work with. How my colleagues see me. Those who work closest with me know me best, right? And to improve my character is to understand it improves those around me. Remember that. The more I improve my character, the more it's going to improve those around me. The more I worship well through my words, through my thoughts, through my actions, the better off the staff at Harvest Connection is going to be. Third, personal. Personal. This is how my family perceives me to be. There have been several studies that have examined why pastors' children sometimes leave the faith. How come we have PKs out there, right? How come pastors' kids are such brats? Some of you have asked me about my own. Well, here's the truth. We all know it's their character, the pastor's character, or the lack thereof in their personal lives. Are they who they say they are from the pulpit at home to the pulpit at the, at the church? When daddy is one man behind the pulpit and another one at home, we wind up with PKs. Now, I'm far more strict on my children when I'm home than when I'm here. I'll just tell you that, right? Yesterday, I had them all out to the barn, and uh, we were sweeping, and we were picking up, and we were cleaning, and we were loading the trailer, and all four of them were out there. None of them, well, they all had excuses of why they didn't want to be there. And then what was funny, it started raining. They couldn't leave. I was like, this thing's going to be spotless by the time we get out of here. Elder showed up and saved them. But anyway... Here's the thing. Our personal lives is a great place to improve our character. Now, the final one is our private place. Okay, private. So there's your four Ps. Private. This is how God knows me to be. Listen, men, we'll never fool God. You are in private. Let me just say this. You, Who you are in private is simply that. It's who you are. Who you are in private is just simply that. It's who you are. All right? If you don't like who you are, then ask God to begin to show you, to teach you who you're supposed to be as a born-again new believer. Ask Him to make you new. Ask God to give you goals, vision, and an eye for the future. You know, to me, that's where Solomon went wrong. The cool thing about private is we can repent in private. We can repent in public too, right? It just depends on where God calls you. But in private, let's be real. Because really, I, I should have started this the other way. Private should have been number one, personal two, professional three, and public four. I just saw that. So here's the truth. We're called to be kingdom-minded, keeping character. We're called to be resolved. This is our life. We'll never get to experience this life again. From this day forward, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. For in it, you will not have it again. This is it, Tuesday, right here, May 32nd. That's it, right? Now, here's the truth. I'm not just going to make a difference today. We've got to see ourselves as being the difference for the day. Because as we go into our public places, as we go into our professional places, here's the cool thing. I get to say, hey, I get to be the difference maker today. I'm going to make somebody's day better. I'm going to encourage someone today. I'm going to have a resolve to stand for what's right and oppose what's wrong, right? That's where God's called me. 
Women will no longer be objects in my world. Sex, drugs, and alcohol will no longer be my pursuit, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit will be my pursuit. I'm going to have an understanding. I'm going to understand that life is connected, that what I do today is ultimately going to affect my tomorrows. I'm resolved to follow Christ regardless of the cost. I know He is with me. He his promises, he'll never leave me alone. I'm resolved to be a man and to take a stand. I was not only created to make a difference, to know that I am the difference. If I die, I will die with my character intact. That should be our prayer right there because our character, godly character is what? Eusebia. It's a form of worship. So I want to die with a form of worship intact in me. Go into all the world and make disciples and remember that Jesus said, He's the one that said it. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We never go alone. We can be fearless. We can be men. When everything is falling out, we're the ones who stand out. Have a resolve to be a godly man. Men online, it's good to have you with us this morning. I hope you learned something quick and fast, kind of bullet pointed. But uh, hopefully we all learned something there questions at your tables, feel free to go through those questions together and uh, have some time of prayer with one another. Thank you.